Amen. Well, last week we looked at how reading the Word of God led the people of God in Nehemiah's day to do what it said, you know, to live by the book. That's what we talked about. And this week we're going to pick up this historical account two days later. So we left off in chapter 8 with uh, the sacred assembly that they called. Remember, they spent a week uh, reading the word and, and fulfilling uh, the, be- the Feast of uh, Booths and, and all of that. After, as they began to read the word, they realized they needed to do what the word of God said. Uh, but here we are two days later in our text, and we find that the people are still mourning over their sins. Uh, so we see, for example, in verse 1, On the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Fasting and wearing a sackcloth in that day, in in that culture, as well as putting dirt or dust on your head, uh, were basically traditional means of of showing that you were mourning. And in this case, it was showing they were mourning over their sin. They'd come to realize that uh, what they had been doing, and not just them, but their ancestors, all during this time of exile, uh, was not pleasing to God, and so they were, they were mourning over it. Uh, sackcloth is this dark, coarse cloth made out of goat's uh, hair, um, and so this was a genuine spiritual revival uh, for these people. We read in verse 2, then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Remember, all along, God's people had been told by God to stay separate from the pagan cultures and religions. When they went into Canaan, they were told not to intermingle with or intermarry or adopt the the pagan cultures of the the surrounding nations. That's very important to God. They were to be holy, to be separate, to represent the one true God. And in so doing, Yahweh would bless them, and then all these pagan, unbelieving cultures around them would come to Israel and saying, we want what you want. You know, who is your God who blesses and so forth? But, of course, we know uh, the history time and again they, they did just the opposite. They had many uh, wicked kings that, you know, led them astray and, and did not follow in the ways of the Lord. Um, but, uh, you know, they confessed their sins. It's interesting that the, the people confessed not only their own sins but the sins of their ancestors. That's a recurring theme that we see again and again in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Not just those books, but even places like Daniel. The whole post-exilic community sort of seemed to show solidarity with past generations and their sins by saying, look, we're all in this together. We, you know, This exile that began with the Assyrian exile of the northern kingdom and then ultimately Jerusalem and Babylon, taken off into captivity in Babylon, that was all just part of God's discipline because we did not do what you told us to do. And so it's interesting that it kind of is a way of kind of coming all together under one tent as God's people. And then in verse 3, they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. Remember, last week we looked at how they read every day for uh, several hours a day. Uh, Here they are doing it again. Uh, And then for another three hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. So uh, I want to stop there for now with kind of setting the stage. We'll come back to Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. They both kind of go together all under the big theme of confession of sin and repentance. But anytime I come across the idea of repentance in Scripture, 
it's important to me that I, that I take the time to really explain what the Bible says about repentance. It's one of the most misunderstood and, and wrongly taught uh, doctrines and topics in uh, Scripture. It's a very, very important topic. Uh, I've gotten a lot of emails even just recently uh, from folks asking me uh, my view on repentance or more commonly critiquing my view and explaining, you know, their view, which is, which is absolutely wrong, as I'm going to demonstrate this morning. If you've been with Plum Creek for a while, you know, last year we, we talked about repentance in the course of our study of Acts because it came up in the book of Acts. And so here it is coming up again, and I want to lay the foundation uh, by talking about uh, this idea of repentance. And in our text, it's a beautiful text. It's a simple text. We'll come back to that, and I'll, I'm going to point out a few more things from it. But let's start with what does the Bible say about repentance? Most people, when they hear the word repentance in, in a Christian context in church, they immediately think of sin as if repentance and sin were inseparably linked. And I want to dispel you of that notion once and for all this morning. And it's going to take time, because if you're like me, you heard it so often, you just your mind associates the two concepts, sin and repentance. But there is no lexical connection between the two. There's no etymological connection between the two. And there's no theological connection, unless the context demands it. So repentance simply means a change of mind. It's the, the noun word, which is metanoia, is used 22 times in the New Testament. The verb metanoeo is used 34 times. We'll come back to what those words mean. But I always like to point out that the sum total of both the noun and the verb, if you put them together, of times that repentance is mentioned in the New Testament is 56 times. That's comparatively few. And it's really stunning to me that this concept of repentance has been twisted and distorted and worked its way in to the doctrine of salvation in, in the way that it has. By comparison, for example, the word believe, a verb, is used 241 times in the New Testament. And well over half of those, more than 160 of those, it's in the context of exactly how to have eternal life. More than 160 times the New Testament tells us we get eternal life simply by believing the gospel, believing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for our sins. And yet so many people today think that the way you get eternal life is by repenting of sins. And it's become so commonplace that when they just say repent, it sort of goes without saying that they mean repent of your sins. And what do they mean by that? They almost always mean stop sinning. So the average person today thinks that the way you get saved and gain eternal life is by stop sinning. You stop sinning, or you promise to stop sinning, or you pledge to stop sinning, or you agree to stop sinning, or you forsake all of your sins, or at least you have to be willing to stop sinning. And it's all just kind of lumped in together. In fact, most gospel tracts that you look at will have a, a diagram of a U-turn. And it's like, here, you want to go to heaven? Well, you're going this way. Now you got to do a U-turn and turn your life around. Turn from all your sins. Stop sinning. And as long as you turn your life around, then you're going to go to heaven. And that is patently, provably, biblically false. And uh, if you don't agree, then hopefully by the time we finish this little excursus on repentance, you'll, you'll see why that, that is false. But another thing that's always... Uh, interesting to me and, and, and kind of goes along with this idea that repentance 
is not the best word to use when talking about how to have eternal life. Let's let the Bible speak for itself. More than 160 times it simply says, believe and you can be saved. But the one book of the New Testament that was written explicitly to tell people how to get saved, how to have eternal life, is the Gospel of John. John's the only gospel that gives us a purpose statement. In John chapter 20, we read, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Remember, the book of the gospel of John is a book of signs, seven signs, the greatest of which is the resurrection at the end, proving that Jesus is the Son of God and the only one that can forgive sin and give eternal life. So the text says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Why was the gospel of John written in our Bible? that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So if John's gospel, which is often called the gospel of belief, was written explicitly to tell us how to have eternal life, it might interest you to know that the verb and noun repent and repentance are not used a single time in John's gospel. Isn't that interesting? Well, did John make a mistake? If repentance of sins is critical to getting into heaven, you'd think John would have mentioned it since the whole purpose of the book is to tell you how to get to heaven, right? So uh, let's take a closer look at this idea of repentance. As I mentioned, it's a Greek word. It's a, a compound word in Greek from the word meta, meaning afterward, and noeo, meaning I think. In other words, to think again or to think afterward is the idea. And so if you look it up in a lexicon in any Greek dictionary, it simply means to change one's mind. In English, we've taken to translating it repent, but many, as we're going to see, many English translations actually translate it a change of mind. The New King James does that on a couple of occasions. So it just means to change your mind. Repentance is a thinking word, as evidenced by the root verb noeo, meaning I think. So to change your mind about what? If you, when you see the word repent, it means change your mind. And so obviously it has to have a context. You know, you can change your mind about many things, right? We change our mind all the time. You know, as an example, if you're here this morning and let's just hypothetically say you're a Denver Broncos fan. Well, you could change your mind and become a Dallas Cowboys fan by, like all God-fearing, born-again, godly, Christian, Republican, American saints, right? Uh, we might say if you did that, you repented. You changed your mind, right? Uh, by the way, it's football season, so I'm sorry, but prepare yourself for an onslaught of Dallas Cowboys references as you get every year this time of year from me. They kick off the season tonight on Sunday night football against the Giants, and I uh, already got my jersey laid out at home on my bed. I tried putting it under this shirt, but it was too long, and it, I thought it would look kind of weird with my Cowboys jersey sticking out from my shirt. So it's ready. I'll get it on before I... Uh, you know, even come out of the bedroom when I get home. We wear all, my whole family, even my four-year-old granddaughter, wears their Cowboys jerseys on game day. And it's going to be a great game, I hope. We'll see. Uh, I'll let you know. Well, you'll probably know. Um, if you hear the weeping and wailing from about an hour south of here, you know it did not, it did not go well. But in all seriousness, repent just means to change the mind. So obviously when you see the word repent, you say, change the mind about what? Let me give you a few examples. Context always determines meaning. So here we have Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Remember, he's, he's on his third missionary journey. He summons the elders from Ephesus up to Miletus, and he gives them this speech. And listen to what he says. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God 
and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's saying they need to change their mind about God. This is what he's been preaching to people everywhere. This is what he'd been doing for 24 years by this point. Jews and Gentiles alike all needed to change their view of God. Jews needed to understand that uh, this God is not some distant rule maker who is pleased and placated only by dotting your I's and crossing your T's. You don't gain favor with God by meticulously keeping the 613 detailed laws in the Torah, the way the Jews by the first century had come to falsely believe. God is not some cosmic sheriff waiting for you to step out of line. He's a God of grace who has provided redemption through his eternal son, Jesus Christ. And the Jews needed to change their mind about God and trust in his son, Jesus, just as Paul says here. Likewise, the Gentiles, they had a wrong view of God. They needed to change their mind to repent in their understanding of who God is. Their view of God was influenced by pagan gods of the day, the Greek and Roman mythology, strange ancient Near Eastern religions, and these Gentiles needed to change their mind about God and recognize that he's the only one true God, he's the creator of the universe, and that salvation can only come through his eternal son, Jesus Christ. That's the message that Paul gave a few chapters earlier in Acts at Mars Hill when he spoke to the Athenian philosophers. Change your mind. Trust in Jesus. There are other passages that clearly show how repentance means a change of mind. Uh, for example, Peter, early on in the church age, after Cornelius got saved, remember the Spirit of God led Peter to go talk to Cornelius, the Gentile, and he and his family got saved. And so now Peter is, in, in chapter 11, appearing before the church leaders in Jerusalem to explain how Gentiles are getting saved just like Jews are. <laughs> Amazing move of God, right? And Peter explains, when they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, again, a lot of people will read that, and, and their mind immediately goes to, oh, these people changed their, their lives. They stopped sinning. They turned their life around. They cleaned up their life, and that's how they got eternal life. No, no, it's just a change of mind. They, they changed their mind about God or Christ. In essence, any time a person, a lost person, comes to faith alone in Christ alone and is born again, that whole concept is a change of mind. Maybe you thought your good works would get you into heaven, and then you, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, changed your mind. You realize, nope, only Jesus can save you. Or maybe you thought your Christian, your religious heritage, or your baptism, or your family, or maybe you thought you don't need salvation. You think you're good enough, right? Whatever it is, when you come to the point where you realize only Jesus can save you and you abandon any and all faith in everything else and only trust in Jesus and receive from him the free gift of eternal life, that's a change of mind. Speaking of Mars Hill and those Athenian philosophers, in Acts 17, Paul says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. It takes a change of mind to get to heaven. Not automatic. Jesus' death on the, Christ doesn't, on the cross doesn't automatically save everybody. It's a choice. Every human being has to personally receive the free gift. Choose to trust in Christ. God does not force that on you. It's a mental thing. It's a change of mind. Uh, Jesus himself used repentance in this uh, same way. He said, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. 
And that, listen, repentance, change of mind, and forgiveness of sins, remission means forgiveness, should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. This is at the end of the book of, of, of Luke, Luke's great commission, so to speak. So he's just, Jesus is saying, you've got to change your mind about who Christ is, not change your behavior. Nobody gets saved by changing your behavior. You can change your behavior all day long, and you're not going to heaven if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. A change of behavior won't cut it. Um, you know, you could, you could listen to some articulate uh, self-help guru. You know, maybe you're channel surfing and you stop on, you know, Oprah or Dr. Phil. Who knows why you'd stop there, but let's just say in a weak moment. And, and this guy is just talking about how to clean up your life. And you go, wow, that's pretty impressive. I can do that. And you just cold turkey decide to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, stop all your bad habits, and turn your life around. Does that mean you're going to heaven? Of course not. Nobody gets to heaven because you change your behavior. And, uh, and yet that's what most people will think. That's the way the gospel is articulated. In fact, many people, I got an email to this effect this last week, that think it, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. That, if you, that salvation is a two-step process. You've got to repent of all your sins and trust in Christ. As if you've got to get cleaned up to take a bath. But you don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath. You can't stop sinning until the Holy Spirit takes up residence and begins to convict you and lead you and guide you. So salvation isn't gained by because you stopped uh, sinning. The writer of Hebrews uses the word repentance. Remember, there's comparatively few references to repentance throughout Scripture. Uh, he says not, this is, he's talking here to Jewish Christians, people who had gotten saved, but they'd kind of backslidden and they were, they'd regressed in their spiritual maturity uh, and he says, by now you ought to have, you ought to be, you know, into the deeper things of the Christian faith. And he says, we shouldn't need to lay again the foundation of, what's the foundation? Repentance from dead works and faith in, uh, towards God. So they used to think that their works could save them. If they dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's, they'd be good enough. Remember, that's what the first century Jews thought. That's why the first message that Jesus taught uh, when he came on the scene, was he, he hammered home the idea that your righteousness isn't good enough. Your righteousness has to be better than the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, Matthew 5.20. In fact, he goes on to say, even that's not good enough. The, your righteousness has to be perfect, just as the Heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5.48. You want to get into heaven, you've got to be perfect. You, you know, it's not about being mostly righteous or pretty righteous or right, more righteous than you were. You've got to be perfect. So good luck with that. The righteousness that heaven demands is perfect righteousness. And so Jesus' point is, the only way you can get that righteousness is by faith. You have to have it imputed to you by faith. You can't be good enough to do it. So they needed, and these people that he was writing to in Hebrews, you know, 30 years into the church, the author of Hebrews, they had already come to recognize the futility of works. They'd change their mind about works and realize they were dead. And instead, they trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone uh, for salvation. And so Peter uses the word repentance in a very famous passage that reminds us God wants everybody to change their mind. He says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We're going to come back to that word perish 
Because as with all words, it has to be understood in context. Sometimes it means eternally, like John 3.16 and here. Sometimes it, also, it means physically from danger, like dying or drowning or dying from sickness. Context has to determine meaning. But here, he's talking about the fact that he wants everybody to come to faith in Christ. So if we were to summarize it, we would say repentance as it relates to salvation is a change of mind about God and Christ. And, and, and recognizing that only by trusting in Jesus can you have eternal life. But sadly, due to bad theology and bad teaching out there, many people suggest that repentance has an entirely different meaning. They say it comes down to changing your behavior. They've, they've created an additional requirement for eternal life besides just faith alone. And, and that additional requirement is if you really want to get saved, you've got to Turn from all your sins, or forsake all your evil ways, or promise to follow Christ, or pledge allegiance to Christ, or clean up your life. And, you know, sometimes as you begin to drill down on this with people, <clears throat> and this is how they define repentance. It's not biblical, it's certainly not lexical, but they define it as changing your behavior. They'll say, well, yeah, you're right, JB, you don't have to change your behavior, but you have to be willing to change your behavior. I spent four hours one time on the campus of a school in South Dakota talking with a whole board about this issue, and, and this one gentleman just insisted that, well, yeah, I agree, you don't have to change your behavior, but you've got to be willing to. Okay, that's not what repentance means. The Bible never says you've got to be willing to change your behavior to get to heaven, but let's just, to, for the sake of argument, let's run that trap for a moment. Let's say that your eternal destiny is conditioned upon your willingness to stop sinning. That at the moment you are willing to stop sinning, in that instantaneous moment, you're born again, adopted into the family of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, names written in the book of life, that justification instantly takes place. That's what it takes. You've got to be willing to turn from your sin. Let's say that's the case. Well, now fast forward. Well, we could fast forward a week, but let's just say fast forward a year into your Christian life. And guess what? You're sinning. And uh, I don't have to ask for a show of hands because I know from my own life, Christians sin. Newsflash, Christians sin. So then you begin to wonder, well, I was saved because I was willing to turn from sin. Now I'm not turning from sin. Maybe I'm not saved. Was I willing enough? Maybe my willingness wasn't strong enough. Maybe my commitment wasn't strong enough. I got to do it again. I got to be more committed this time. So now I'm going to walk the aisle again, sign another card, raise another hand, do something else. And this time I'm going to really, really, really mean it. I'm really willing to turn from my sins. Guess what? Before long, you're going to be right back in that battle that Paul describes so eloquently in Romans 7. When he describes his own life, no less than the Apostle Paul. And he says, the things that I know I shouldn't do, I sometimes do. And the things that I know I should do, I end up not doing them. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? See, the fact is... Most people don't understand the difference between our position in Christ and practical uh, life with Christ. Positionally, the moment you trust Christ, you are positionally in Christ. You are 100% righteous. But as we all know, we don't often, we don't always live out that righteousness in a practical sense. Sometimes our behavior is different from who we are in Christ. Our positional righteousness is not reflected in our practical righteousness. Well, how do you explain that? Sadly, some people who misunderstand repentance think, well, that must have mean you didn't repent of your sins. And if you didn't repent of your sins, you're not saved. So you need to repent of your sins. And if you really repent of your sins, then you will 
live a godly life, and that'll prove that you're really saved. And they make it all about works. But I can prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that the concept of repentance has nothing to do in and of itself with sin. Now, we're going to see how, in some context, it can have to do with behavior. You can change your mind about your behavior. You can change your mind about God. You can change your mind about Christ. You can change your mind about what you want for supper. You can change your mind about what football team you're rooting for. You can change your mind about a lot of things. And yes, you can change your mind about your behavior. That's talked about in Scripture. But changing your mind about your behavior does not get you into heaven. But I want to prove to you for a moment that changing your mind, repentance, is not automatically tied to sin. Did you know that in the book of Exodus, the Bible tells us the Lord repented? Now, how many of you would say unequivocally without a moment's hesitation that God never sins? Agreed? God never sins? Amen? Right? That should be a given, right? Well, if repentance automatically means stop sinning, then how in the world could God repent? If God never sins, how could he repent? That alone should show you that repentance doesn't have to do with sin. In fact, the New American Standard, same verse, translates that word, the Lord changed his mind. You know why? Because that's what repent means. It's a change of mind. Now, we can save the discussion for what that means theologically that God changed his mind, because that's a deep discussion about the immutability of God and anthropomorphisms and all of that. But the point of this illustration is just to show you that repentance is not automatically connected to sin. Here's another example. Amos chapter 7, the Lord repented. Uh, New American Standard, the Lord changed his mind. That's what repent means. And if God can repent, then repentance must not always be connected to sin. Repentance does not always automatically, lexically, inherently relate to sinful behavior. But in certain contexts, you might be called upon to change your mind about your behavior. Um, So sometimes when you're sinning and living an ungodly life, your practical righteousness is not reflecting the positional Righteousness, your practical behavior is not living out the new man in Christ. You're catering to the flesh, walking in the flesh, and therefore producing fruit of the flesh. And so <clears throat> begins up here. Behavior always is sourced in the mind. We act on what we believe. And that's why it really is a battle for the mind. Colossians talks about this. Uh, uh, Paul talks about it in Romans, renewing the mind. It's a battle for the mind. So when your behavior is not pleasing to God, you got to change your mind about that behavior right? And, and so this is what we see, you know, several times in Scripture, uh, the Bible talking about. For example, here's one that's vastly misunderstood. <clears throat> this verse is often used in gospel tracts as a salvation passage. It's not. It has nothing to do with eternal salvation. When you have time, go back and look at the whole context. You won't find heaven or hell mentioned anywhere in the passage. As I mentioned, perish does not automatically mean go to hell. It just, it's the Greek word apolumi. It means destruction. It can mean eternal or can mean physical. It's the same word the disciples used on the Sea of Galilee when the storm arose and they went and woke Jesus up, remember, and they said, Lord, uh, rescue us. We're perishing. Well, they didn't mean we're going to hell. They knew they were saved eternally. They just didn't want to drown. So here's the same context here. It just means physically. In the context, some Galileans had been in Jerusalem offering sacrifices at the temple. And, uh, you know, Pilate, the Roman governor of the province of Judea, had killed them right beside the altar in the temple courtyard. Well, the people in Jesus' day believed that this occurred as a direct result of the people's sin. And so they concluded, wow, these Galileans must have been bad people because, look, they got killed. And, you know, 
you know, if they had just done little sins, they wouldn't have died. They, they, you know, they must have done some pretty bad things to be killed. They had this retributive view of God. So Jesus comes along in the context and explains that all sin is bad and that sin is an equal opportunity killer. And unless you also change your mind about sin, your little sins, you might die, right? Everyone needs to repent because sin left unchecked in anyone's life, believer or unbeliever, inevitably is, is likely to kill you. Uh, you know, we, we see several examples of this throughout Scripture. Very quickly, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That means physically and spiritually. Spiritually, because we're all born in sin, Ephesians 2.1, we're all spiritually dead and we need to be made alive by faith alone in Christ alone, as Jesus told Nicodemus. Uh, but it's also true physically. Sin leads to death. James, the Lord's brother, said, Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. John the Apostle said, Look, guys, talking to believers, talking to brothers and little children, he says, There's sin that leads to death. Uh, there's sin that doesn't lead to death, but there's sin that leads uh, to death. Paul in Romans 8 says, If you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. Right? Sin kills. Proverbs has repeats this theme again and again and again. As a general principle, he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. The years of the wicked will be shortened. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it leads to death. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. One of my favorite poetic ways of saying it in Proverbs is a man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. In other words, sin kills. Sinful behavior always leads to great unpleasantness. And therefore, everyone should repent of your behavior. Change your mind about your behavior. Once you've done that, then it normally, and we're going to talk about this in a second, reflects itself in a change of behavior. But it starts in the mind. It starts in the mind. But ch changing your behavior never saves you eternally. Because we're not saved by works. I mean, this is, couldn't be more clear in Scripture. For by grace have you been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not by works of righteousness. Where have I heard that phrase before? Uh, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us. Paul said, to him who works, it's not counted as grace, it's counted as debt. To him who believes, it's counted as righteousness before a holy God. See, you can repent of your sins all day long. You can turn your life around, promise to stop sinning, agree to stop sinning, be willing to stop sinning. Put any term you want in there. It's not going to change you spiritually. It's not going to impute Christ's righteousness. Only faith can do that. You're not saved by works. Romans 11, if it's by grace, it's no longer works. And if it's by works, it's no longer grace. Never the twain Shall meet. Grace means free gift. So when people say, and again, this is prevalent out there, and you need to train yourself to be sensitive to it. When people say, oh, you got to repent of your sins to be saved, and then you say, well, wait a minute, you mean you got to turn your life around and change your behavior and start living right to get saved? They'll go, oh, no, 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 you're not saved by works. But you got to be willing to do that. Where do you see that in Scripture? Look up the word faith used 241 times in the New Testament, 160 plus in the context of eternal life. It just means confidence or assurance. It's who you are trusting in that saves you. 
not what you are willing to do on your own. Amen. Changing your behavior never saves anyone. You don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath, as I said. So when it comes to eternal salvation, repentance means a change of mind about Christ, and about God, and, and about what saves you. So you might say it this way. I used to think I could save myself by my good works, but I have repented. I've changed my mind. I see now that only Jesus can save me, and I'm trusting in him to give me the free gift of eternal life. Well, what about repentance and behavior in the life of believers? We're already saved. We've trusted in Christ. We've received the free gift. We're born again. Still struggle with sin from time to time. How does repentance play a role in that? Well, sometimes we need to recognize that our behavior does not conform to the image of Christ that is within us. And so we need to change our mind about our behavior. What we might think is okay is not okay. And uh, we need to change our mind about that behavior and walk in the righteous behavior that pleases God and reflects who we are in Christ. It's all about recognizing who you are in Christ and living that out. It's the new man, old man dichotomy that Paul talks so much about. And this right here is exactly what's going on in Nehemiah's day. Now, they weren't in Christ because they weren't believers from the church age. They didn't have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But they nevertheless were God's people who had backslidden, they'd gotten away from the Lord, through reading the Word of God and the convicting power of the Spirit, they began to realize that what they were doing was wrong. They had a change of mind. And as we shall see, that change of mind resulted in a change of behavior. So let's turn our attention back to Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10 and see the quintessential example of what it means to repent of sin. Repentance of sin is not a requirement to get to heaven. By the way, I always issue this challenge. You know, there's not a single passage in the Bible that says you must repent of your sins to go to heaven or have eternal life or to stay out of hell, anything like that. Never. Now, the Bible talks about repentance of sins as we've just shown you. It means to change your mind about behavior and begin to live in a more agreement with uh, the, the God's Word and God's commands. But never does the Bible condition eternal life on repentance of sins, not a single place. And you'll have people really throw down and argue with you on that because they've been taught it so often. Well, just show me, chapter and verse. And they'll go to Luke 13, 3, and I'll say, yep, absolutely. If you don't repent, you're going to perish. It says nothing about heaven, hell, eternal life, eternal salvation. It's just talking about, look, sin's a killer. If you don't sin, you'll die. If you don't stop sinning, you'll die like these others did. Sin will kill you. You play with fire, you're going to get burned. Or they'll point to Acts 2.38 or other passages. But again, it never says you've got re- you to stop sinning or promise to stop sinning to get to heaven. That would violate a host of other passages that make it clear salvation is a unilateral free gift, not a bilateral contra- contract. So back to Nehemiah's day, the people were not content after reading the Word of God to just go about their business as usual. Uh, they realized they needed to hear more and to get right with God more completely. They had, they had begun, you know, fulfilling the Feast of Booths like we talked about last week, but there was other things they needed to do. And the ninth chapter of Nehemiah is one of the most eloquent uh, recitations of God's marvelous acts throughout Israel's history anywhere in the Bible. Uh, I often recommend the Nelson Study Bible as I think the best study Bible out there. It's now called the New King James Study Bible, but the general editor was a friend of mine. He wrote the foreword to my first book over 20 years ago, 
he's with the Lord now, great man of God. But all the whole editorial team that worked under him were great men of God, most of whom I knew. And the Nelson Study Bible compares the ninth chapter of Hebrews as being one of the most beautiful sections of Scripture reciting God's faithfulness throughout Israel's history to, play, to, ch to chapters like Exodus 15 and Moses' Song of the Sea or Deuteronomy 32 called the Song of Moses or Deborah's Song in Judges 5 or Hannah's Song. Remember that in 1 Samuel or David's Song of the Bow in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Beautiful uh, section. I just want to read a couple of verses. We don't have time to read the whole chapter. But it starts out in verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you, the angelic beings. And then he goes on, they go on singing this to recite God's goodness, starting with Abraham, then the children of Israel leaving Egypt, uh, Mount Sinai, crossing into the, the promised land, the ups and downs, the golden calf, all of the things that the Israel had done, good and bad, throughout the years. You get to the end, verse 32, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, notice this, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. I mean, they'd been in exile for all this time now, first in Assyria, then Babylon. They're starting to come back. But notice what they say. You know, in other words, don't, you know, you know look, look kindly on us with all this trouble. But notice they say, Our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. And then I love verse 33. However, Lord, you are just in all that has befallen us. Why? Because we have done wickedly. You have dealt faithfully. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law. Nor heeded your commandments or your testimonies with which you testified against them. They have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked ways. But herein, in chapters 9 and 10, what do we see? They've changed their mind. They've acknowledged that what they were doing was wrong. And then it re was reflected in a change of behavior. So I just see three simple uh, aspects of repentance to sin as illustrated in this beautiful historical account of the people of Israel. First of all, it begins with conviction in the heart. It, it's a thinking matter. And remember, heart and mind are used interchangeably. I'm going to explain that here in a second. But if you go back to chapter 8, which we looked at last week, remember, uh, all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Repentance always begins in the heart-mind because it's a thinking word. It has to do with your thoughts. Mind and heart are used interchangeably throughout Scripture. Another false notion that gets a lot of airtime and it's just wrong and you need to dispel yourself of this motion is that somehow the mind and the heart are separate. And people will say you can believe something up here but until you believe it here you haven't really believed it. Wrong. The Bible uses them as the same. They're the seat of the, the mind, will, and emotions. It's where we do our thinking. In fact, in, in, heart, in, in Hebrew the word heart is kavod. It's just like the center of your being. Here's an example. David wrote in Psalm 7, 
Let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish a just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. And then Hebrew grammar, that's an apposition. Hearts and minds are the same way of saying the same thing, not two different things. Or another Davidic psalm, Psalm 26, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and heart. Or the psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73. Notice the synonymous parallelism here. It's a couplet. The first line, it's not written poetically on the screen here, but the first line makes a statement. The second line repeats the same thing with different words, but it's the same thing. My heart was grieved, my mind was vexed. Heart and mind, same thing. That's why Proverbs says, as a man thinks, where? In his heart, so is he. Wait a minute, I thought you thought with your mind and you feel with your heart. That's a very, you know, a platonic way of thinking of things. It's a Western mindset, a very American way, too. You, you think up here, you feel down here. Nope, you think and feel here and here. The mind and heart are the seat of the, of the will and the emotions and all of that thing. So if you want to change your behavior, you got to first change your mind. you got to change your heart, the conviction in the heart. That's what they, these people did. And then secondly, they confessed with their mouth. To confess means to agree with God. The Greek word confess, I don't have it on the screen, but it's a compound word like repent. And it's homo, meaning same, and logeo, meaning I speak. Uh, so to speak the same, to speak samely, you might say, or to say the same thing as, homo logeo. So to confess is to Say the same thing as God's saying. It's to get to the point where you say, Oh, Lord, your word says this. I'm going to agree with you. Yep, what I've been doing is wrong. Your word says my behavior is wrong. I agree. It's confession. And that's what we saw, as we read earlier, that they did. They stood and confessed their sins. They agreed with God, with his word, that what they were doing was wrong. Verse 3, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Confession flows naturally from conviction. When there's something going on in your heart, it's hard to keep it there. That's why the Bible says when you do try to keep that convicting move of the Spirit in your heart there, it's called quenching the Spirit. It's like, oh, no, I don't want to hear that. I'm going to turn a deaf ear and you try to quench it. No, no. La, 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 la. I don't want to hear you, Holy Spirit. And the more you quench the Spirit, the more your heart becomes what? Hard. And the harder your heart becomes, by the way, then the harder it is to hear the voice of the Spirit. And it can become so hard that your conscience is seared. And that's what happens with believers who ultimately, you know, depart from the Lord. They've, they've uh, disobeyed and turned a deaf ear to the voice of the Spirit so many times for so long that it's hard to hear that voice of the Spirit. And, and the Lord can still break through, obviously, but often it takes a very major unfreezing event to get their attention. And that's why you want to keep short accounts. You want to listen to that voice of the Spirit, and you want to respond to it. And First John 1 talks about that. Now, uh, another verse that is woefully mishandled and mistreated, and you need to mark it down, this verse, 1 John 1, 9, is not talking about how to have eternal life, how to get saved, how to go to heaven. The whole book of 1 John is written to believers about how to have fellowship with the Lord. And 
he says here, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you, you might be sitting there thinking, wait a minute, J.B., I thought that we get forgiveness of sins the moment we believe in, in the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, again, just like with righteousness, there's positional righteousness and practical righteousness. There is positional forgiveness once for all, and then there's practical forgiveness. Once for all, your sins are nailed to the cross, and if you've trusted in Christ, those sins are gone, as far as the east is from the west. And when you stand before the Lord someday, he's going to see the righteousness of Christ flowing through you. But it doesn't mean we stop sinning. It means we should, and to the extent that we follow the convicting work of the Spirit in our hearts, we will, but we still have that old man to wrestle with, like I talked about from Romans 7. And so when we cater to that old man, guess what? We're going to sin. And it doesn't mean we're no longer positionally forgiven, but it does mean that we break fellowship with the Lord. There is a difference between being part of the family of God, which can never change. Once you've trusted Christ, you're adopted into the family of God forever, and being in fellowship with God. And I'm going to diagram this out for you to hopefully help explain it a little more clearly. But just think about the analogy of family of God, which the Bible uses, John 1.12, to as many as received him by faith, those he gave the right to become the children of God. First John chapter 3 goes on to say, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We're part of the family of God. Think about that analogy on the earthly level. I mean, you can be in a family relationship with someone and yet have some tension. Maybe you did something that made them mad, maybe a husband, a wife, a child, you know, brother, sister, whatever, or they did something that made you mad. But there's tension. You know what I'm talking about. Don't look at me like I'm from Mars. You know, you have these kind of relationship issues too, right? And it doesn't mean you're not still part of the same family. You can be in family and have tension. And then what ends up happening is hopefully, you know, somebody says, oh, I'm sorry, or will you forgive me? And then all that tension goes away, and now you hug, and you're back in a, a good, right relationship. That's the way it happens spiritually. The book, book of First John is all about having a deep, joyful fullness of our relationship with Christ. Jesus said, I come that you may have life, but that you may have it more abundantly. So being saved eternally is one thing, but we want to enjoy the fullness of the joy of the Lord. And that's what 1 John is all about. So let me try to explain it this way. Family of God versus fellowship with God. I, I used this a couple of years ago in our Wednesday night study, but I know we've picked up a lot of folks since then, and I think it's a helpful way to illustrate what I'm trying to explain doctrinally here. So it starts with a lost sinner. So you're born dead in your trespasses and sins. You're outside of the family of God. You're not saved. Uh, your sins are keeping you from penetrating through that wall and becoming part of the family of God. But Jesus died to pay your penalty for those sins. He took the sins of the whole world upon himself in substitutionary atonement. And then we receive that payment on our behalf by faith alone. And when you trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone, that access to the family of God is opened up. And the minute you trust in Christ, you become part of the family of God, and now you're in the family of God. And so you know, the Bible says in Galatians 3.26, we're all sons of God or children of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how you become part of the family of God. And if, if you're saved, if you've trusted in Christ, or you're watching the live stream, or you're here in the room and you, you've been saved, this is a picture of your relationship with God. You're part of the family of God. But it can go deeper than that. Within the family of God, there's an intimate level, level of fellowship. Remember what John said, 
Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So you've got kind of two arenas within the family of God. You can be in the family of God, but because of your sin, it's keeping you outside of the circle of fellowship. You're not in that intimate relationship. You know, First John repeatedly talks about abiding in Christ. To abide in Christ means to be in close fellowship with him. That's what the word meno in Greek means, to be in close fellowship. It's what Jesus told the disciples in the upper room just hours before he was crucified. He said, hey, abide in me. Stick close to me. I know I'm going away, but the Holy Spirit, the Comforter is going to come in a unique new way, and you need to stick with me. That's how you'll navigate these next few decades of persecution and ultimately martyrdom. Stay with me. And so John, 60 years later, writes the same thing to you and me. And he says, we need to abide in Christ. So when you sin, you're not abiding in Christ. And the way of transgressors is hard. It's misery. And any believer knows that. When you're out of fellowship with the Lord and you're catering to the flesh and producing the fruit of the flesh, it's miserable. It's miserable practically. You're bearing the fruits and consequences of sin. You're missing out on the blessings of the Lord. You don't have that intimate relationship with the Lord. You know it. You feel it. But if at the same time we yield to the Holy Spirit instead of to the flesh, if we walk in the Spirit, then we're back in right fellowship uh, with Him. And, And it's a time, it's a place of joy. What a great place of joy when you're in right fellowship with the Lord. But no matter what, no child of God can ever penetrate through this wall. Nothing you can do can cause you to no longer be part of the family of God. God will never kick you out. You can never jump out like some people teach. No, you're permanently a part of the family of God. So the question is, are you in fellowship with the Lord, as First John tells us, and experiencing the joy of the Lord? Or are you out of fellowship? And that's what confession is all about. 1 John 1, 9 is not telling you how to get saved. If you have to confess to get saved, then mute people are in hell, right? I mean, just think about it logically. You, you, you don't have to confess to be saved. The Bible never says that. In fact, Romans 10, 9 and 10, that's not what that means. We don't have time to get into that. But it's what the heart man believes and is declared righteous. That's what he's talking about there. So fellowship and confession go hand in hand. And it starts with conviction in the heart. It then leads you to agree with God and confess. And then you change your behavior. It leads to a consecration of life. And that's what it did uh, for the people in Nehemiah's day. We didn't read this verse, but at the end of chapter 9, the very last verse says, because of all this, because of everything we've just recited about your faithfulness and our disobedience, we now agree with you, and we're going to make a promise to do better. We're going to make this covenant. And all the people put their seal on it, the rest of the people. They joined with the brethren, and they took an oath to walk in God's law. So repentance is a change of mind. That change of mind should, if it's about your behavior, result in a change of behavior but it doesn't always have to do that i mean it doesn't it's not guaranteed to do that and i can prove that as well you remember john the baptist who went around preaching repentance and many people lined up to get baptized by john the baptist had nothing to do with eternal life we know later on there were some people that were baptized by john that weren't saved and they met paul and paul had to lead them to faith and then they had to get rebaptized so they get the holy spirit 
uh, after they got saved. So we know that it wasn't a baptism of eternal salvation. It was just a baptism uh, to recognize that the kingdom was at hand, to change their mind, a baptism of repentance, to change their mind about the kingdom. The kingdom was now at hand. Remember, change of mind always means about what. So in that context, John the Baptist, after some people had been baptized, he says, you should bear fruits worthy of repentance. Think about that. If repentance automatically meant a change of behavior, this would be a, a weird, redundant, nonsensical, like a tautology, a, a repeating circle. It'd be, okay, now that you've changed your behavior, you need to change your behavior. <laughs> repentance doesn't mean change of behavior. Repentance means change of mind. Once you've changed your mind, then you need to bear fruit in keeping with that change of mind, right? So a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, he didn't really repent because look at his life. No, he might have repented. He really meant it. He changed his mind, but he just didn't live it out. But in any case, a change of behavior does not save you. A change of behavior will lead to fellowship for believers. It might save you from the death-dealing consequences of sin, whether you're a believer or not, you know. If you stop fooling around with sinful behavior, you might live longer. But the only thing that will give you eternal life is faith alone in Christ alone. And we need to stop uh, suggesting to people that somehow they can get to heaven by changing their behavior or promising to change their behavior or forsaking all their ways. That's not it. There's no U-turn that gets you to heaven. If you U-turn to get to heaven, you're just going to end up going in a circle because you're going to U-turn then guess what? You'll stumble and fall. Oh, I must not have met Mrs. I got a U-turn again. And then for a while, you're, you know, by your own volition and self-will, you're going to do good. Then you'll fall again. You, oh, I must not have done it right. I got to do it again. And you just end up going in this circle and you die and go to hell because you never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So here's the takeaway. Uh, just following the same points that we saw from the text in Nehemiah, Three keys to repentance of sin, or this is the review, conviction in the heart, confession with the mouth, and the consecration of life. Here's the takeaway. Guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart from issues, you know, spring the issues of life. Once you've guarded your heart, then you need to be open and honest with God about what the Spirit of God tells you. What's in your heart? And agree with God. And then, having agreed with God, examine your conduct. As a believer, that will help you... Uh, experience the fullness of joy and fellowship with the Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, reminder and beautiful example of really what it means to repent of sin from Nehemiah. I pray today that if there are believers here struggling in their uh, walk with you that need to be brought back into fellowship, that you would just get a hold of them and your Holy Spirit would get a hold of them and convict them and bring them back into a right fellowship with you. Don't let go until they've confessed and change their mind. Lord, I pray if there's one here listening to the sound of my voice that doesn't realize they're a sinner who needs a Savior, I pray that they would change their mind and recognize that only Jesus can save them. And they would today, in childlike faith, trust in your Son and our Savior as the only one who can give them the free gift of eternal life. And Lord, we pray this in his precious name. Amen.